You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The desks in my new homeroom were laid out in a 5 by 5 grid, somewhere on which was located the socially optimal spot. My mother, unsure how long the drive to MLK would take, had erred on the side of caution, and all but three desks were still available. The choices of the first three arrivals suggested starkly different intentions. Two girls in ornate sweaters sat front and center, while in the last row a boy reclined his chair against the wall, his eyes shut. The boy's haircut was horizontally bifurcated at the level of his ears, shaggy above and close-cropped below. I considered joining him in the back row and perhaps mimicking his insouciant posture, but that would have drawn too much attention, so I opted for a seat in the classroom's exact center. Pleased with my choice, I settled in, savored the symmetry of rows and columns around me, admired the perfect diagonals that stretched from my seat to each corner of the room. At once my satisfaction spoiled. The midpoint was the most noticeable, the most calculated. I snatched my bag and scrambled to a seat one row back and one column to the left, although no one else had come in yet. I was happy with this innocuous choice, but I feared that the boy with the haircut had seen the switch and perceived my decision-making process at work. In attempting to avoid the appearance of calculation, had I exposed my calculation? I turned back and glanced at him, and our eyes met. By looking, I had given myself away. We sat in silence for at least ten minutes before others began to arrive, many in groups of three or four who had carpooled or arranged to meet outside. I tried to believe that they were as anxious as I was, despite the casual way they picked seats, chatted, called out to one another. This kind of information is inherently distorted. We see others from the outside, all smooth surfaces and fixed appearances, and ourselves from the inside, with our subjectivities and histories and bodily fluids. Gabriel Roth has worked as a journalist and a web developer. His new book is The Unknowns. Thank you for joining me, Gabe. Thank you. Good to be here. This is such a wonderful book, and it's a great and I think a very entertaining and readable vision of a culture we don't see much about. This is the world of software development and people who kind of live inside that world and inside themselves as well. That's a very good description, I think, yes. The, the protagonist, Eric Muller, is a computer programmer, and, and from an early age, he's, he's uh, uh, precociously talented at programming computers. But he's also, as you say, he's stuck in his head. He's not as good at understanding other people or his relationships with other people. And as a, as a reader, one of the things I really loved about this book was its vision of this kind of personality. It's, I think, maybe a bit of Asperger's to a degree, but we don't think that. What we think is here's a guy who's trying to constantly uh, creating theories of what other people are thinking, but being clueless and so terrified of his own thoughts that he's unable to really get a grasp on what's happening around him. Yeah, I think that's a very good description. I, uh, you, bet you bring up Asperger's, and I, I thought about that for a while as I was writing the book. I was sort of wondering, well, is this guy on the spectrum or not? And I, I knew who he was, but I wasn't sure about that diagnosis. And in the end, I sort of concluded that I don't think he is. He, he has a great deal of empathy for other people. And, and in some ways, he's very good at understanding what other people are thinking and feeling. But he's paralyzed by a kind of self-consciousness. He can't stop his, his rational cognitive mind from processing every interaction and every development in his life. 
I, I, one of the things I loved about this book so much is it captured an aspect of uh, human thought that I've never seen done quite so well, which is what I call hamster wheel mm. uh, syndrome, where you're so caught up in your own thoughts, you can't stop thinking them. And the more you try to stop thinking them, the more you become involved in them. Now, Writing about this has got to be a challenge because you want to convey that experience without conveying some of the boredom and the anxiety of the experience. Talk about crafting that into prose. Well, I think that's right. That is a challenge. I I did want to convey the anxiety a little bit. I certainly didn't want to convey the boredom, or at least I didn't want to convey it to, to the reader in the sense that I didn't want to bore the reader. Uh, but I, I feel like anxiety is in some ways what gives the book its tension, what keeps the stakes high. Even going into an ordinary social situation like a party, uh, the narrator, Eric Muller, uh, he, he can – the anxiety that many of us feel in those kind of situations is heightened for him. And it makes even these small moments seem sort of life or death challenges to him. And I did want to convey some sense of that high stakes drama of these low stakes interactions to the reader. There's a great part. There's a great. There's a million great sentences in this book, and it, that's one of the things that makes it really pleasurable to read. At one point, uh, a character says that I think it's uh, Eric says that he's just a system for maintaining and sustaining anxiety. Mm. <laughs> I think that that's a, a great uh, description. Yes, and and that's his experience. Uh, is he says something. His girlfriend asks him, do you consider yourself an anxious person? And he says, I think of myself as a life support system for anxiety. The anxiety is the organism and I'm the habitat. And it's true that that's a moment of self-encapsulation for him, but it's also a moment of banter for him. It's a moment when he's trying to describe his experience in a way that will also be funny and charming to this girl that he's so in love with and that he wants her to like him. Uh, and if if he has a saving grace, I think it's his ability to understand these slightly strange aspects of himself and convey them in a in a humorous way that hopefully makes him less alienating, both to this other character but also to the reader. Oh, absolutely. This is one of the most charming characters that I've ever read. And, and actually, I'd have to say that for pretty much everybody in this book, we really like everybody we're with, even the people who are somewhat annoying. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm pleased to hear that. And also, I wonder about a couple of the characters of an older generation. There are two fathers in the book, Eric's father and his girlfriend Maya's father. Uh, and while I hope they're both sympathetic in different ways, did you find them likable? I, I can't say they were likable, but I enjoyed reading about them. And I think that, that that's a difference. And I think you tread that difference really well as a writer. So talk about creating these two characters. The two fathers. Yes. Well, so Eric Muller, the narrator, is a sort of genius of computer programming. He has this exceptional talent. And, and in the book, he starts a software company and sells it for a lot of money and, and becomes wealthy. And so he has these sort of unusual gifts and abilities that are useful to him in these different ways. And yet, I wanted him to come from a background where he didn't have many advantages, either financial or really emotional or personal. I wanted to give him parents who... who didn't really give him very many resources to help him, and particularly a father who, character Barry Muller, Eric's father, he's a big, 
blustery professor of business studies at a small college in Colorado. He's a man who hasn't accomplished very much and feels the need to sort of puff himself up and make himself seem like a hero of capitalism. Uh, and as a weak narcissist like that, he's, he's not a very useful father. He's not someone who's going to give his son a very strong sense of self or self-worth or, or integrity or pride. And so everything that Eric accomplishes in the book, he does sort of on his own without the kind of help that some of us had. I, I had nice parents and good parents. And if I've done anything good, part of that is because I, I had these lovely parents who helped me. And if Eric has done anything good, he sort of gets all the credit for that. Uh, so that's why Barry Muller, the father, is a character that, although I'm sympathetic to him because he, he's insecure and weak and in, probably in a great deal of pain on the inside, he's just not a good man to have as your father. Talk a little bit about uh, creating Eric. We get his his full life story, and I'm wondering if did you create it in chronological order, or did you create the Eric who's the main character for most of the book, and then backdate him to his high school years? And I did it the the, the second way. I, I began with Eric as a 25 year old multimillionaire going to parties and and not really knowing how to have ordinary interactions with people and trying very very hard to figure that out. Uh, really, I began with the the voice and the character's self consciousness, with the the idea of writing a book from the perspective of the thoughts of a guy who has to think everything through much much more deeply than most of us feel the need to do, and. That was a fun voice to write in and a useful voice to write in because it enables you to describe interactions in a particular way and to, to use uh, novelistic techniques of observation and description, but to give that a, a psychological aspect that's a bit unusual. And then thinking about what kind of a person would have this voice in his head, what kind of a person would be so self-conscious as to do close readings of every small interaction. And from there, I, I came up with first Eric's personality and then his profession as a software developer. And it was only after that that I started thinking, well, where did he come from and what was his childhood like and, and how did he get this way and does it come back to the first years of high school as it so often does for so many of us? Uh, I love the scenes in high school. <laughs> I think that you really capture that really well This because high school is such a formative time and it's a time when uh, many people experience confidence and many experience people experience terror. And you do a great job of explaining that kind of split where if you're confident, you're more confident. But if you're not confident, it gets worse. That's right. It's path dependency. Uh, whatever's happening to you at 13, you're going to be more and more like that for a long time unless you can get yourself out of that particular rut. Talk a little bit about uh, the the scenes in high school, which are, are so much fun and so funny. Well, that experience, that time in my life is is pretty vivid to me still. It's it's I think for a lot of us, it's something that, you know, we go about our ordinary lives as adults and we put on our adult clothes and go do our adult jobs. And then we can close our eyes for 30 seconds and we're right back to ninth grade or 10th grade and to whatever we were going through at that time. And certainly that's what it's like for me. And so when I thought about how to Eric become the way he is. I was thinking about an experience in high school in which he was humiliated and ostracized and isolated, and then also about his his struggle to come back from that experience and to 
fight his way back into some semblance of social normality and, and some kind of ordinary social relationships. It's a time in our lives, that those teenage years, when we're becoming adults biologically and we're almost becoming adults psychologically. And at the same time, we're forced into these very strange and unusual environments in which these groups of people all the same age are sort of penned together every day in these weird ways. And it's not very much like adult life. And and so when you look back at that, you, you see some pretty strange things happening. And, and I thought there was a lot of drama there. You do a great job of capturing that drama and also, I think, of capturing the dawn of the computer age and this intersection of the earliest computers, and earliest commercial computers, and young men is something that will never, I think, be duplicated in history again. And I think you've done a great job of capturing that in this book. So talk about how computers and, and the languages that are needed to program them inform the voice of Eric Muller, who's, I think that's how he's bounded. Sure. Uh, I do a little bit of computer programming. I started doing it in the course of researching the book, and I, I find it really interesting and exciting in a lot of ways. What's interesting about programming computers as an experience is that you are immersing your mind in a world of abstractions and learning how to manipulate them. A computer program consists of a, a, a bunch of quote-unquote objects at, or instructions which don't exist in the real world but which exist metaphorically in the brain of the computer and in the essence of the code that you're writing. And if you're good at doing it, you have to be able to keep those abstractions in your head, turn them around, move them around, connect them, figure out how they interact and how they will work in every possible case. And it's almost uh, analogous to a sort of mystical or meditative practice because you're separating yourself from the world and your mind is existing at a very high level in this completely abstract realm. And I was thinking about this in the context of Eric as a teenager when he begins programming. He's, the real world, the concrete world, is so miserable for him. His parents are inadequate to his needs. His experience in high school and with his peers is just horrifying. And being able to retreat into this world of abstractions where he can be in control and the only limits are the limits of his own ability to understand things, that would be both very exciting for him but also, I think, comforting and soothing for him. You have a a number of great quotes that open the chapters. And I think my favorite is the one that asks the question, well, here you found here, it. <laughs> uh, this is a quotation from an essay called Why Nerds Are Unpopular by uh, a man named Paul Graham. Uh, the line goes, if they're so smart, why don't they figure out how popularity works and beat the system just as they do for standardized tests? And I think that that is a quote that I think summarizes uh, Eric's view of the world and how he parses the world. And I think that's a really great way to parse the world. <laughs> well, it's great in some ways. And then in other ways, it, it leaves him in with some problems at the end because, of course, uh, social interactions and, and having relationships with other people, in fact, isn't a rigid, closed system like a computer program or a standardized test. And so attempting to hack that system is only going to get you so far. And it gets Eric so far, but it doesn't get him as far as he needs. But I think for us as readers, it makes his the prose that you give him in, as you're, we're inside his head is 
absolutely just a joy to read. It's really funny. It's very insightful. And it make, gets us, I think, outside of ourselves and lets us understand also simultaneously how hard it is to get outside of ourselves. And I like the way that you capture that paradox. Uh, thanks very much. Yes. Uh, for for Eric, I think the, the world outside of himself is never something that he can exist in naturally or smoothly. I think for most of us, we go back and forth between being in our heads and thinking things through. And then for some parts of the day, we're going on autopilot and we're behaving naturally and responding instinctively and intuitively and sometimes even in a way that feels good, in a way that feels like we can just relax and go with the experience. And and at different times in my life, I've been able to do that more and less. Uh, but for Eric, those experiences are very, very rare. And, and I think that makes up the core of the book. Now, one of the things that I think you do very well in this book in a variety of ways is uh, describe parties. We have mm. parties where you know, a bunch of 20-somethings are gathering, but we also have family parties. There's a, a great scene at a restaurant. Uh, so I'd like you to talk about uh, creating the party experience from the per- point of view of somebody who can never really fit into a party particularly well. Well, is there anyone who really fits into a party particularly well? I'm sure there is. I'm sure 90% of people fit into a party just fine. And this is just me uh, exposing perhaps too much of myself to your listeners. But I, I found those scenes interesting to write because when you have many, many people in one place and they're trying to uh, have fun together or celebrate someone's birthday or just have a meal or whatever it is, network effects come into play. If you have two people in a room, there's one relationship between them. But if you have three people in the room, there are three people. And when you add a fourth person, the number of relationships increases exponentially. And so writing a scene in which there are six characters at a dinner table, the connections become multifarious and they start to branch out. And it's just more material as a writer to play with and strike sparks off of. How much of this book came out the way that we read it and how much of it was trimmed back because this is a really super tight book. It seems like there's not a word wasted. Every word is enjoyable and the prose is kind of dense and detailed but really fun and lighthearted. I appreciate your saying that because that was my intention because that's the kind of book that I like to read. I enjoy reading things where with each sentence you you get a sort of nugget of information or observation or comedy or character or whatever it is. I do try to write in that way, and that involves a lot of editing and revising and cutting back, but that usually goes on pretty much parallel to the writing process. So you know, one day I'll write three pages of material and the next day that those three pages will get cut back into three quarters of a page or something like that. And I enjoy that process. I like not having to have my editor brain on while I'm writing. But then as soon as I've finished writing a bunch, then I get excited because I have some material to revise and I can really make it dense and chewy. And and that's my favorite part. It it, it shows in, in the writing. One of the things I think you do really well in this book is here's a book that, you know, there's no uh, criminal driver to the plot. Nobody's murdered, you know, in a sense that there's not a lot of uh, action going on. But the pacing of this book is very intense, and I think you do a really great job of setting up expectations. You'll have a 
you'll have a scene where uh, the character will refer to say something, oh, and in three weeks I'm going to be here and it's going to be way worse. Mm-hmm. And you use these kind of hooks like throwing a rappel hooks ahead into the prose to, to pull us forward. Mm. I, yes, there, there are moments in the book where the character speaking in the present tense gives a makes a reference to something that will happen at some point in the future. Uh, that's one of those things I really don't know where that came from. But as I started writing, then I, I started doing that. And it's one of those things where y- you sort of wonder, well, is this okay? Is this allowed? And yeah, it's got to be okay. I mean, and then at the end, you have to decide if it works or not. And I, I kept it in. Oh, they're really fun. It, as I say, it really keeps the uh, keep. It makes the reading experience much more intense. And I really like too. One of the things you do in the prose that's really fun is you use these kind of hyphenates, the uh, uh, phrases like the the wanting to ta- talk to dad, talk about dad. <laughs> so talk about kind of creating these, uh, you know, these hyphenates that are particular to our time and our place and and your experience and the character's experience. Well, I, I hadn't noticed that as a pattern in my writing, although now that you pointed out, then I, I, I know exactly what you're referring to. I think that's just a result of me trying to cram as much meaning as I can into a single clause of a sentence. And so uh, I- instead of saying, um, I, I don't remember the exact sentence you're referring to word for word, but so instead of saying, she wanted to talk about dad and I was tired of that, then I might wind up compressing it into I was tired of her wanting to talk about dad impulse or something like that. Um, it, For me, it's more satisfying the more meaning you can get into the, the shorter span of words. Well, also, too, I think it's it's fun. I mean, one of the things, this book is a lot of fun to read. And one of the things that's interesting, I think, is let's talk a little bit about Eric's parents. Uh, there, There's a divorce and Eric's mom is is it, he lives with his mother, and she's still dating. And I don't think I've ever seen this situation where you know a pre preteen and teenager is living with his mother, who's dating not too successfully. So talk about creating that kind of dynamic between the mother and the son, and the other people in her life, and what's going on in his life, and how they're both somewhat clueless about what's going on. That's right. I. I... It seemed once I had established Eric's character, it seemed very clear that one thing he didn't have was a really great model of a successful relationship. That it wasn't just that his parents' relationship had fallen apart, and and I don't know if this is explicitly in the book, but my sense is that they were married relatively soon before he was born, and then they were divorced when he was, uh, I think, seven years old. So their marriage didn't last particularly long. And I knew that neither of his parents would have had an ongoing healthy relationship with a step-parent or, or anything like that. So that he, this is not a guy who has seen how two mature adults negotiate the process of being in love with one another. And for his father, that's clearly about being a narcissist and not really being able to see other people at all. But for his mother, it it seemed to be about a kind of haplessness or an insecurity that made it hard that would make it hard for her to do anything really difficult like dating or finding someone especially as an as an adult but also i think the 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 largest reference to the mother's love life and dating life is an anecdote that eric tells about a terrible date that his mother went on which 
is the kind of story, I think, that we hear from our parents and that we tell about our parents. And, and part of what I wanted to do there, Eric is on a date with Maya, the, the, his, who will become his girlfriend in the book. And I wanted to write a bit about how when we're first getting to know someone, we tell them our, our stories in order to show them this is who I am and this is where I come from. And also, look, I can be entertaining with this stuff, but it's also who I am. That, that, that's what successful early dating is in a way. You, you do a great job of de- describing the, the modern dating process in this book. And so I'd like you to talk about uh, creating that kind of arc in the book. Uh, how much did you know in advance? How much did you work out? And uh, could you talk about like, you know, some of the, the points that you make along the way? I, I think, you know, the email flirting, for example. Well, I, when I began this book, uh, I, I was in a relationship with, with the woman who is now my wife. So I, I was basically done with dating, although that wasn't absolutely clear at the time, but it was pretty clear. But I, I had spent the, the 10 or 15 years before that going out on quite a lot of dates or starting a fair number of relationships and mostly really being preoccupied with that, really putting a lot of energy into meeting girls and trying to be in love and trying to make them like me and and all of that stuff. Uh, You know, it's part of life for most of us, but it was really a a preoccupying part of life for me. Uh, And so I just had all this material from that uh, and and all of these thoughts and um, experiences. But also I had been doing it for long enough that the patterns seemed to be emerging. Uh, that, for instance, when, when the part that you're referring to, he's met Maya and he wants to now ask her out. And so he sends her a flirtatious email. And he says something like, I have no idea how anybody managed to ask anybody out on a date before there was email. And I used to ask people out on dates before there was email. I'm that old. And then I got to ask people out on dates after there was email. And it really did solve that problem pretty thoroughly for me and and I think for most of us because it takes out the element of real in-person humiliation where you have to like go up to them at a party or at school or call them up on the phone and actually be there while they respond to you asking them out. It just, that was just terrible. I remember like doing it with like giving them a note or something in school or something like that because just, just make up your, if you, if you, do, if you don't want to go out on a date with me, that's fine. But can I not be there when you tell me? Can you tell me in some more distant way so that I don't, you don't have to see my face as I process the information? And, and so having, you know, spent a bunch of time thinking about this, then that was naturally where a lot of the energy of the book would go. You know, it interests me when you talk about this because uh, I was thinking that in a sense, uh, this could be, uh, had this book been written in the 1970s, it would be like a, a science fiction novel about how technology has changed our society so much. Well, that's true. But now, you know, this book is set in 2002, 2003. And for people who are coming to it now, especially people who are a little younger than me and who are having their dating experiences in the social media era, uh, it, it's a historical novel. It's a novel about what dating was like before there was Facebook and, and Twitter. 
And some people say, gosh, it's so weird that he doesn't find out all about her thanks to Google and Facebook. But there wasn't Facebook and the information that was available on an individual person on Google in 2002 was not as rich as it would be today. And so, yes, in, from the 70s, it looks incredibly futuristic. But from today, it's already technologically outdated. But that's what you get for, for incorporating this material into a book. And if I were to write another book that, that was all about dating in the age of Facebook, by the time it was published, everybody would say, oh, Facebook. My dad was on Facebook. What was Facebook again? <laughs> That's so interesting. You know, uh, I'd like you to talk about um, one of the things you do really well in this book. There's a lot of humor, and you drive us to the edge of these embarrassing situations, but not so far into them that it's uncomfortable. So I'd like you to talk about, like, uh, coming to the precipice without jumping into the chasm. Well, I guess I hope that some of it is pretty uncomfortable. Uh, I, I hope that there are moments of embarrassment and humiliation that are sufficiently fully realized that the reader feels a certain amount of discomfort at the, the character's predicament. Um, one of the things that I was trying to do, I don't want to talk about this as though this is such a unique approach because it isn't necessarily. But the problem that I have with a number of books that are filed as uh, comic novels that are humorous novels is that they create a world in which there's no real tragedy or suffering. And, and it's as though the presence of comedy couldn't tolerate the presence of actual human pain and, and real suffering. And I don't think that's true at all. From my experience, the real value of humor, the real value of, of comedy uh, is to give us a way of existing in a world that's, that's often painful and difficult, not existing by shutting out the pain and difficulty, but existing by processing that pain and difficulty uh, in, a way, in a way that's compassionate or that's ironic or that gives us a little bit of distance or that just indicates that there's other people who have shared this experience with us, that that's what humor is actually for. And so what I was trying to do was to write a book that would be funny not in spite of the horrible, painful aspects of life, but that would be funny by going as deeply as I could into those painful aspects of life. I think one of the ways that you and Eric do that is you were talking about distancing, and I, I think that the... Uh, analytic trope, the way he div divvies up everything into statistics, into the, you know, uh, to probabilities, to, you know, different kind of math theories. I think that that's a, a really entertaining way to do that. And, and I'd like you to talk about, did you have to find yourself researching some of the terminology he used? I did have to do that a little bit. Often I would know that there was some kind of term from economics or mathematics that would apply to the concept that I was groping towards. Uh, but often I would have to look it up on Wikipedia. And then in a few cases, uh, you know, I, I was careful to give the manuscript quite early on to a friend of mine who's a programmer and who has a pretty sophisticated understanding of this stuff. And he was able to correct a few errors I had made either in programming terminology or in math terminology. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Maya. We, uh, Eric meets Maya at a party. Um, and he's sidelined at first by another girl. <laughs> and so I'd like you to talk about uh, creating this kind of plot arc with Eric and Maya and how, how you – did you create the whole plot arc 
before you started writing the the material, or did the plot arc come out of the material? Definitely the second of, of those options. I I began writing, and it was clear. I established the character and the voice, and it was clear to me that the the main thing in this guy's life, the main thing that he wants, is to be in love, and the main thing that he wants is a relationship. And so I put him in a situation where he has to. He meets this girl. He immediately falls for her. He has to court her. He does some of that, and and then uh, it it seemed to me well, okay. So now what? Now are they they're just gonna go out or what? And it seemed that there had to be something in in that relationship that would challenge him on the deepest possible level. That would be difficult for him specifically as a person who exists most comfortably in an area of bounded rationality and and cognitive activity and certainty. Uh, And so I wanted being in love with this girl to present a a really deep problem for him, not just the ordinary problems that love presents for all of us, but a, a problem that was specific to him. And then I wanted to see if he would be able to solve that problem for himself. Uh, I love some of the descriptions that you have, his perceptions. Uh, how, at one point he thinks about, early on, he thinks about how Maya is happening without me right now. I think that's such a great, uh, that's a great insight into the way people, into the kind of anxiety and worry that, that engulfs a lot of us. Thanks. Uh, I, I know I've had that thought when I'm, when I've been sort of obsessively preoccupied with someone. And then the, you, you achieve this kind of doubled existence where uh, here I am doing whatever I'm doing, but where is she and what's she doing and is she thinking about me? Uh, and, and you can no longer just have your ordinary being where you are existence. You, you use a story a lot in this book. Um, characters tell themselves stories about themselves. They tell stories about other people. So I'd like you to talk about the different levels of stories. We, you referred earlier to an anecdote that Eric tells, and, and there's a lot of material like that, kind of like little potted mini bios of the characters that give us some kind of nugget of story that's gives us insight into the, both the person who tells the story and the person whom the story is about. Thanks for recognizing that. Um, it, it's like that mostly because I think that's what the novel is really good at doing and good for. Uh, there was a, an essay by the Bay Area novelist Michael Chabon uh, that ran in the New York Review of Books uh, maybe six or seven years ago that, that sort of opened my eyes to this. He was writing about the Sherlock Holmes stories, and he talked about how the Sherlock Holmes stories are one big overarching story of the relationship between Holmes and Watson. And then each individual story uh, consists of Holmes and Watson solving a mystery, but it begins with a character coming into their apartment at Baker Street and telling them a story. And then there will be the story of the investigation. And then Sherlock Holmes will tell you the real story of what actually happened and how these detective stories are little plot machines that set little wheels of plot spinning within other larger wheels of plot. And I thought that was a wonderful way to look at it. And of course, as Shabon points out in this essay, that's what all novels do. They set little stories spinning inside of bigger stories uh, and contextualize those smaller stories. But also each of those little stories is, is pleasing and satisfying in and of itself. And that's one of the reasons why I think the novel is the greatest form is because it's the pleasures of narrative operating on so many different levels at once. Uh, and so I was aware of trying to do that in The Unknown's 
just as a technique for making the book engaging and and fun. It is engaging and fun. Uh, tell me about creating Maya. She's a very interesting character, and you do some interesting things with her. Uh, how much of her did you know when we when you first met her at the party, and as opposed to what happens over the course of the novel? Not very much is the answer. That's a character who was being evolved and shaped and developed over the course of writing the book. What I did know to begin with is that she, for her to be a sort of worthy match for Eric, she would have to be intelligent because he's intelligent, and she would have to be able to look at him and his hyper self-conscious thing with a kind of amused, ironic distance. She would have to be able to say, oh, yeah, there you are. You're doing that thing again. And and she would have to love him in spite of that and also in a way love him for that, but also be able to kind of keep herself one step outside of it in order not to get sucked up into that way of being and thinking that that would be the only way that this could be a real love story. And so for a character who, who has that kind of intellectual strength, then you start to think about, well, and what strengths doesn't she have? And where did she get that kind of intellectual strength? And how does she use it? And what does she use it for? And all of those questions were, were what was on my mind as I was writing that character. One of the aspects of this book that's so interesting for me uh, is what um, is called theory of mind, which is this idea that when we look at somebody, we form a model of them and say that person's thinking this. Uh, they are thinking uh, they want to go eat. Then they are. Then we have to form uh, the the second level of theory of mind is understanding what they think of us. And then you can go for a third level of mind, what they think of us, what we think of them, mm. and it keeps going back and forth up to I think seven levels of mind is. <laughs> Well, they may technically somebody might have decided to stop at seven, but there's no reason to stop at seven. It's a hall of mirrors, right? It goes on forever. That's the terrifying thing about consciousness. Uh, right. Well, I think that you use that as a plot driver in this book to, as these people have different slight misperceptions of one another, you'll give us both sides of the story. So talk about using that to drive plot and, and use and create, you know, a plot out of uh, character perceptions. It's a really interesting insight, and I wouldn't have described it that way myself, but it's certainly something that I'll have to think through because I'm sure that it does apply. Uh, the term theory of mind, I think, comes from cognitive psychology and, and I think particularly research into autism. People have said that autists are lacking theory of mind in some sense. My way of thinking about this stuff comes more from the psychoanalytic tradition and from Melanie Klein, who talks about it in terms of object relations, in terms of uh, if I have a relationship with you, then I have a version of you in my mind. And when I think about you or interact with you, in some way what I'm actually thinking about and interacting with is that little version of you in my mind rather than you as an independent, autonomous being. And in a way, that's the big problem for all of us, right, is that we only see each other through the prism of our own consciousness and our own perceptions, and yet at the same time, we desperately want to be seen by one another for who we actually are. We desperately want to be recognized in our totality and our autonomy, and at the same time, we desperately want to shape the other person's perceptions of us. We desperately want the other person to, to have the... the uh, 
perception of us that we've designed and curated to be most uh, most appealing. And, you know, people talk about this nowadays in terms of, let's say, your Facebook profile and how we can create these selves that we want to project into the world. But we were doing this long before Facebook, right? This is what we've been doing ever since we first started recognizing one another. And yes, in the novel, quite often there are conflicts that come out of, first of all, how does someone see someone else? But second of all, someone worries about how someone else sees them and tries to shape things according to their preferences and like that. Just because the reason the novel is like that is because those are questions that I'm interested in and and questions that I think are, are central to our experience. One aspect of experience you catch really well is the world of coding and coders. And there's a while that Eric spends working at a kind of digital uh, money firm where uh, he has to deal with what's called legacy code. And I absolutely love this little anecdote, that, this story about the this firm. So talk about uh, creating that and, and the part that that plays. Well, there are two main sections of the book. The The main action of the book takes place when Eric is an adult and has sold his startup and makes and made a lot of money uh, and is pursuing this relationship with Maya. And then there are other chapters that take place when Eric is a teenager and in high school. In between those two times, between when he was a, a, a lonely, isolated teenager and when now he's a lonely, isolated multimillionaire in his mid-20s. There was a period when he was a lonely, isolated 20-year-old and he didn't go to college because his dad wouldn't pay for it. And he wound up working as a coder in a big firm in one of these incredibly boring programming jobs that many unfortunate programmers wind up getting stuck in. And it's a it's a company that sends money back and forth around the world, and he has to deal with the transactions code, which is very thorny and complicated and also really not interesting. And the code that he's working on is code that has existed in some form or another for 15 years and that successive generations of programmers have uh, adapted and changed and fixed to the point where it's now... I want to use programmer terms like hairy or crufty. It's full of little bits of code that exist to solve some kind of bug, and everybody's forgotten what the bug was, but this little bit of code survives, and you don't know why it's there, but if you take it out, it'll probably break something, but you don't know what, but then that code is getting in the way of you doing the thing that you've now been assigned to do. And these are just terrible, miserable jobs. If Eric was going to start a startup to move to California and found a startup and do this intrinsically risky thing, it could only be because the situation that he was in was really, really miserable and he would do something kind of bold in order to get out of it. And so I, I put him in this really terrible situation that uh, an unfortunate number of programmers have told me that they've recognized. I I really like that aspect of the book. And, and I like, too, Eric's somewhat uh, feckless existence in the present. And that must have been a challenge for you as a writer to write about somebody who's extremely wealthy and has essentially nothing to do. And that, that, that sets yourself up with a, a real problem. Well, I think if you discount the extremely wealthy aspect, I think a lot of writers can relate to that sense of having these unstructured days and and nothing to do. I, this was written at a time in my life when I, I was not putting on a suit and going to meetings or having to show up for particular appointments. And so that sense of the way, the strange way that time passes when you don't have a day job was definitely on my mind. But yes, 
part of Eric's fecklessness, as you say, or part of the reason that I put him in a situation in which he would have that opportunity to be so feckless is because I think that would be just terrible for him. I think his mind would just be able to spiral unconstrained in every direction. And without that kind of structure to keep him in check, uh, who, who knows what kind of weird spaces he could get into. Uh, and, and in a way, everything about the novel is structured to bring out and emphasize these strange qualities of Eric's and, and test them and, and see how far they can go. And I think you do a great job of creating somebody who's kind of an extreme case of the kind of anxieties that everybody experiences. And what you do is you take the kind of ex- the kind of things that we all think, and then you just manage to to notch it up a couple more. It's in the language of spinal tap. You turn our brains up to eleven. Do you know I've I've used that phrase not with the brains, but I've said and then turn it up to eleven unthinkingly without even recognizing the reference for exactly that thing. I, I said this was. I wrote some of this material when I was a graduate student at San Francisco State in the fiction MFA program, uh, and I do remember saying. You know, we all have this self-conscious aspect of ourselves, and then I wanted to write this character where it's turned up to 11. And everyone looked at me very strangely, some of them because they hadn't seen the film and some of them because they had, and yet they were still a little surprised. Uh, But yes, that's exactly right. Certainly that trait is a part of me, and at different times in my life I I might be more or less self-conscious. But I wanted to see what happens to that trait if it becomes so overpowering that it becomes the dominant element in this guy's character. This book has a very interesting tone, too, because it's funny, but it's also uh, tragic, and and you kind of modulate the tone, um, I think, almost on a sentence-by-sentence level to to keep it kind of even but also uneven. It's a a great beating experience. Thank you. I, I think part of what I was trying to do is that when there's a novel where there's where the jokes are evenly paced and you know there's going to be a gag at the end of every paragraph, then they stop working. It stops being funny because it becomes monotonous and routine. Whereas if you don't know if the paragraph is going to end with a joke or with something that's really depressing, uh, it, it keeps you hopefully on your toes as a reader and makes you vulnerable or susceptible to each of those effects. Um, so that's what I was going for. And I'd like you to to talk a little bit about uh, dealing with some of the, the more depressing aspects that, that are covered in this book. Just as a writer, did you know how far you wanted to go and uh, or did that come out of the prose? Because I think the prose itself is really strong in every single scene in this book. Well, thank you. Um, those depressing or difficult aspects of the book, uh, I knew that I wanted them to go about as far as I could, really, in the same way that I I wanted the funny parts to be as funny as I could make them. Uh, I I wanted the sad parts to be as sad as I could make them because why not? Uh, If you're going to do it, you might as well go for it in a way. Uh, This is such an interesting book. I'm wondering, uh, this seems like you must have like a Three more like this ready to, to roll off your pen? Well, I, I wish I did. Uh, no, it, it, in terms of what to do next, it's, a, it's an interesting question because the voice of the character in this book, well, the voice of this book is so 
now so strongly associated with this character for me that it's hard to know if I should start another novel with another character because would I have to develop an entirely different voice? And does that mean giving up these techniques that I initially were just part of the way I write? Do they now belong to Eric Muller and now I have to figure out a whole completely different way of writing? Uh, I don't really know what the answer is. Do you so you don't have anything written yet? I'm I've, I'm beginning a second one, but but it's we're only at the beginning, and the, these big initial problems have not been fully resolved yet. This book is a lot of fun, and and I'm wondering, uh, you spend a little uh, some time uh, here in in the Bay Area Guardian. I'd like you to talk about uh, how your work as a journalist informed your work, your fiction. Well, yes, that's right. I, I was a news editor and a reporter at the San Francisco Bay Guardian for about five years. That experience informed my fiction mostly by demonstrating to me that I was not a very good journalist, and so I should find some other thing to do that I was better at. I, I was pretty good at writing copy cleanly and quickly, and I was pretty good at taking other people's copy and cleaning it up pretty quickly. Like I, I can do that, I think, to to a fairly high level. But... Being a journalist involves getting uh, the skills of getting information and of identifying what information is going to be relevant and valuable. People talk in the industry talking about news sense, just having a sort of instinct for, oh, there might be a story there. Let's look into that a little further. No, that's not a story. Let's not look into that. And and I I just didn't really have those skills, and I spent a while trying to acquire them, and I got a little better, but it was never something that I, I was going to be especially good at. And so switching over to fiction where if the facts don't work for you, you make up a different set of facts or you borrow something from this and put it over here in order to produce a particular effect. And that's not only allowed, but encouraged. That was a great relief to me after spending a while as a journalist. I've been speaking with Gabriel Roth. His new novel is The Unknowns. Thank you for joining me, Gabe. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.